This is story. I want to tell you today, this is not just your story, not just my story, not just the story of God's word. This is our story. There's something that God is doing, something that God has always been about that involves a people. And as Pastor Chris mentioned that verse in Luke 2:52 earlier about how Jesus grew in his adolescent years, one of the ways that he grew was in favor with man. In other words, relationships mattered to God. Relationships mattered to Jesus when he walked on the earth. Relationships matter. Can we just all get on the same page with that today? In fact, would you just say that with me? Relationships matter. They really do. Now, I want to throw a bunch of verses of scripture at you really quickly. You might want to just jot the references down if you're a note taker. I'm not going to give you time to turn there. But let me just lay a foundation for what we're talking about today. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus, <coughs> speaking to Nicodemus, who came to him at night, he replied to him saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, Jesus uses a physical birth as a metaphor for what happens when a person comes into a relationship with God through Jesus. He says, you're born again. And just like in physical life, when you're born in the spirit, you don't have the choice of who your siblings are going to be. How many of you can say amen to the natural life? You're like, yeah, wish I could have, maybe, I don't know. But you don't get the choice. You're born into a family. That means you look around this room and you've got brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a relationship with them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says this. It says, see how great the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of of God. That's the way that God has lavished his love on you. He didn't, he didn't just save you. He put you in a family. <laughs> in fact, from the very beginning, God's plan for his people was always for a people, not just a person. When you go all the way back to the beginning of the word of God, Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 26 that God said, let us make mankind in our own image. Now, he was talking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. No one's on the earth except the Trinity and all the, the animal kingdom. And God says, let us make man in our image. He wasn't just talking about one man. He wasn't just talking about Adam. He was talking about all of mankind so that they not he, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the, <coughs> all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God was talking about you. In Genesis chapter 1, he had a plan, and it wasn't for a person. It was for a people. If you move forward a little bit in the Genesis account, you come to chapter 8 and 9, and we learn the story of a man that God used to save the animal kingdom and to continue on the human race. God was so frustrated with sin and how people's hearts had grown wicked that he made up his mind, I'm just going to flood the whole earth except for this one guy and his family and the animals. How many of you know who that guy was? 
Noah, Noah. But God makes a covenant with him. And it says in Genesis 9, verse 9, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. In other words, God wasn't just thinking about Noah in that moment. He wasn't saying, well, I'll, I'll save the one righteous man and forget about the rest. He said, no, I'm establishing this covenant with you and with your descendants, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Here's the covenant. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then after that, God says, here's going to be the sign of the covenant. I'm going to put a rainbow, a rainbow in the sky. And every time you see that rainbow, it's going to be a reminder of my covenant-keeping promises. Can I tell you, it wasn't just for Noah. It was for you. It was for me. Every Christian that sees a rainbow, you ought to only think of one thing that represents. It represents the covenant-keeping power of the God that we serve. Because from the very beginning, God was not just working towards the heart of a person. He was working towards the heart of a people. You go forward a couple chapters to Genesis 12, we meet Abraham. Abraham, who's called the father of our faith. And the Bible says in Genesis 12, verse 2, God, speaking to Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation. Now think about it. How does one man become a great nation? See, this wasn't just a covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant with a, a people. <coughs> he said, I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. God's plan has always been for a people. Did you know in the New Testament, there's 59 different places in the New Testament that, that tell us things that we should specifically do with and for one another. Love one another. Care for one another. Be patient with one another. Be gentle and tolerant of one another. On and on and on. There's almost 60 times just in the New Testament that the Word of God says, these are the things that you're supposed to do to and for one another. I love the way Andy Stanley talks about it. He said, the primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. Think about the implications of this. There's, there's behaviors that are commended to the church, and, and they flow naturally out of our relationship with God. They come out of that relationship, but the obedience to them is not back to God. The obedience of those commands are to other people. Things like be kind to one another, wait for one another. You can't fulfill those commands outside of the context of community. You can't fulfill those commands outside of relationships with other believers. Let me give you one of them. Genesis, or Galatians rather, chapter six, verse two. Here's one of the one another's. It says, carry each other's burdens or one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You, you, can't, you can't even obey the law of Christ if you don't 
do these one another's for one another. And what is the law of Christ? Well, he tells us what it is in John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as you have loved. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's the command of Jesus. And he says, if you're going to fulfill the command that I have for you, you have to do it in the context of relationship. There's no, there's no way possible. Think about this. There's no way possible for you or I to actually walk in obedience, in biblical obedience, in our relationship with God outside of the context of community. You, you can't do it. So... What that tells me is that not only do relationships matter, yes, they matter, but relationships are essential. They are an essential component for spiritual development. They're an essential component for obedience to Christ in my life, in your life. I can't be who God wants me to be. You can't be who God wants you to be. If all of your faith is personal... And the only corporate part of it involves coming into a, a congregation like this and, and experiencing the same sermon and singing the same melody line. No, those things are great, and I never want to discredit what God wants to do in moments like this. These are powerful moments. I'm just telling you, if these are the only moments, you can't walk in obedience. You, you can't fulfill God's plan for your life outside of being a part of a people, because God has always been invested, not in a person, but in a people. You know, when we read the scriptures, we've kind of been trained and, and hardwired to, to open the word of God, to know God, to understand what it says about him, and then secondly, to, to know how we're supposed to react and respond to God. And so we can look at the Bible and we can see what God is like and how we're supposed to engage and interact with him. But can I just tell you today that the Bible is a lot more than that. The Bible communicates to us a whole lot more than just what it says about God and, and what it tells us about ourselves. In fact, the scripture gives us keen insight into the human story. All through the Word of God, we see relationships being built and being destroyed. We see restoration. We see union. We see wars. We see conflict. I love the way that Erwin McManus writes about this topic. I want to read something to you. He said, from my vantage point, if we were to engage the Bible as a study in human sociology, the word that would emerge is tribe. That just, that just struck me when I read that. Think about how much of the Word of God is about tribes and people. We see God establishing tribes in Genesis. We see the culmination in Philippians 2 when it says, One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Every tribe and tongue will confess. He is Lord to the glory of God. Erwin goes on to say, The entire journey of Israel is about becoming a people. In fact, if the scriptures are to be taken seriously, there is no journey toward God that does not bring us to each other. I just want to say that again. If we're going to take the scriptures seriously, there is no journey toward God that does not bring us to each other. I'm talking about a people. I'm talking about a tribe. Can I just tell you, you know, if, if anybody's prayers are going to be answered, 
I would assume it's Jesus' prayer. And John chapter 17 tells us what Jesus prayed. It, it says in John 17, verse 20, it says, My prayer is not for them alone, speaking about his disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's Jesus' prayer, that they would be one. He says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a powerful prayer. Jesus said, I want them to be unified. I want my people to be one. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. I genuinely believe what Jesus is saying in that moment is that more powerful than our preaching or, or our chart-topping worship songs that we have in our generation, more powerful than our literature that we can send around the world or stream via the internet, the most effective and powerful witness to the world that Jesus came and saved us is our unity. I want them to be one, just like you and I are one, Father, so that the world will know that you sent me. Can I just remind you today that there is just one church that Jesus established? Amen. On the day of Pentecost, the church's birthday, Jesus launched the church with that group of disciples and 120 in the upper room. That's the only church that he started. There's not another birthday for another church. You know, it's funny. I was thinking, we, we have different theological beliefs. Different denominations and fellowships have different ideas about when the Lord is coming again. They, they call it eschatology, the study of things to come. Some people are pre-tribulation. Uh, some people are mid-tribulation, some people are post-tribulation, and, and some people say, I don't even know what tribulation is, and, and that's fine. I just love Jesus, and I, I, I hope he, you know, he doesn't forget me when he comes. But the truth is, whoever's right, when Jesus comes, he's coming for the whole church at one time. There's not going to be an Assembly of God rapture, a Methodist rapture, a Presbyterian, come on, right? I mean, at least I hope not, because you know the Baptists and the Methodists would beat us there. They always beat us to the restaurant. <laughs> you know they'd beat us to heaven if there was multiple raptures. One church. One church. Let, let me read a scripture to you. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you, you may want to look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. I'll give you a minute to find it. Okay, I'll give you five seconds to find it. Who am I kidding? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, verse 5 says. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus is coming back for how many churches? One. One church. One bride. Not multiple brides. 
not into that one bride. He's coming back for his church. Now, now look at the next verse if you're there in Ephesians 4, because I want you to see how it qualifies this. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So what that means is it qualifies all this to say that, that salvation is not the, the group, friends, and family plan. That's not how salvation works. Each one of you has grace apportioned to you. Each one of you has to make a personal decision to follow the Lord. God has no grandchildren. Amen? Amen. He has sons and daughters. Nobody gets in on grandmom's coattail. All right? Every one of us has grace apportioned to us. Salvation is an individual work in your heart and life. But sanctification, that's the process of us becoming more like Jesus. Am I the only one that got saved and didn't immediately become just like Jesus? I hope not. Take your halo off this morning, all right? That process of us becoming more like Christ, sanctification is something that God does in the context of community. We work it out together. The Bible says in Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen his friend. We work out our faith together in the context of Community. Listen, you, you may have began your journey of faith all by yourself, but I can promise you this morning, there's a land that God is taking you to, and it's called together. He's bringing us together. Why? Because God has always been invested in a people, not just in a person. You're not an island unto yourself. You know, I've noticed a pattern in, in Scripture, and you probably have too. Sometimes, quite honestly, I wish this wasn't the case. But the pattern is this, that when God wants to do something, when he wants his people to move or, or to start something, he usually speaks to a person, just one individual, one spiritual leader, right? And it's usually a man. Sorry, ladies, but that's true, right? At least in the Old Testament. He speaks to a man. He gives him a vision of where he wants to go. And then that person leads the people of God. Moses, for example, I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if, if God would have just called everybody up on the mountain? I mean, wouldn't it have been easier if they would have all got their own copy of the Ten Commandments on stone tablets? They all could have just gone home with their own, you know, tablets and read them and shared them with their family. No, it didn't happen that way. A man of God had to go up to the mountain of God and get a word from God and come back and give it to the people of God. But then the people had to respond to the word of God through a fallible and imperfect man of God or woman of God and be obedient to it. And so God, I I see this pattern that that God, he calls people to lead. And, And when he does, usually the first response is humbling. That's why when he called Moses, Moses said, who are you? Who am I? And then when God clarified who I am and who you are, Moses' next excuse was, I I don't know how to speak well. Send somebody else. He was humble and overwhelmed at the idea that God would speak to him to lead his people. When Jeremiah was called, his excuse was, I'm too young. When Gideon was called, his excuse was, God, I wasn't born in the right family. When Jesus called Peter in the boat, his excuse was, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Over and over again. Isaiah, woe is me. I have unclean lips. I live among unclean people. 
And yet God, he calls people and he responds with two promises. The first promise is, I'll be with you. That promise is for you too, by the way. Aren't you thankful that God says, I'll be with you? Oh, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can handle it, but I'll be with you. God promises his presence, but there's a second promise. God also promises over and over again that he's going to provide people to help you. In other words, the thing that he's called you to, he hasn't called you to go it alone. I mean, we, look, we love to look at, you know, David on the battlefield against Goliath. And, and we attribute so much of his success and his throne that was established as the king of Israel back to that moment when one courageous teenager went toe-to-toe with the giant. But can I tell you, you have overlooked the major part of his story if you accredit all of his success to one victory. That one moment of courage garnered him the attention of a nation. But from that moment... David had some hardships. David had some troubles. In fact, you can read his story in 1 Samuel, and you discover that he found himself so discouraged, he was hiding from the king of Israel in a pit all by himself. He was hiding, trying to protect just himself and his own family. And in the midst of that, the Bible says that there were some men who gathered around him. And I love this description of this elite, <laughs> elite group of individuals who gathered around him. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2 says this, describing the people that came to David. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Distressed, in debt, and discontented. Doesn't sound like an elite group of individuals. But David was at his low point when he met this group. And God began to build a mighty army of warriors around him. David ascended to the throne not because he toppled one giant, but because God brought brought a people around him that he could lead. That's the pattern of scripture that we see all through the word of God. Moses had Joshua and Aaron and Hur to lift his heavy hands in the midst of the battle. David had his mighty men and he had Jonathan, the most unlikely representative, the one person who should have been fighting him for the throne, the rightful heir. Jonathan, the son of the king, said, no, David, God's anointing's on your life and I'll, I'll protect you, I'll fight for you. Elijah was suicidal. He was so depressed. And God sent Elisha to encourage him. Jesus had 12 disciples. Paul had Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, Luke. God blesses us with his presence. But then he secondly blesses us with his people. I'm telling you, you don't have to go it alone. God is with you. And not only is God with you, but he's put you in a family. This story that that God is writing for your good, it's not just your story, it's our story. It's our story. He, Jesus, is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's our story. There's an ancient African saying that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, 
go together. How many of you have served Jesus long enough to know that this is a marathon and not a sprint? If you want to go far, go together. You know, I've come to realize more and more, not only is it a marathon, it's a relay. I, I got to have some other people that can come alongside and run with me. I got to have some people whose legs are strong when mine are weak. I got to have some people that can push me and challenge me to go further. Everything that God's doing, everywhere that God is leading, he's leading towards people. He's leading you towards the body of Christ. You know, if you just wanted to get a snapshot of what the significance of relationships are, you just have to look at the life of Jesus. In fact, if you have your Bible, go to the last page of the book of Matthew. The last page of Matthew's gospel, right before you get into the book of Mark. <coughs> I mean, don't you think if, if, somebody, if somebody was going to be able to fulfill the will of God for their life completely and perfectly, without anybody's help, it would be Jesus, right? I mean, nobody else maybe stands a chance, but come on, he's the son of God. He's perfect. Word, thought, indeed, perfect. Miracles, signs, wonders, part seas, walk on water, perfect. Jesus probably didn't need anybody's help. But here when you look at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have what it, my Bible has the subtitle, The Great Commission. And many of you are familiar with this portion of scripture. When it comes down to the very moment where Jesus is going to, he's going to take the greatest assignment in the history of humanity, the salvation of the human race, he's about to place it in the hands of these 11 disciples. And it's only 11 now because in the last 50 days, one of them has already defected. So can you imagine the confidence level, you know, going into this thing? And yet, Jesus communicates relationships matter. And that's why he says here in Matthew 28, look at verse 16 with me. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Have you ever noticed that before? I gotta be, that blows my mind. I mean, we're talking post-resurrection. I mean, they've already had that moment in the upper room a week after the resurrection where Thomas said, I don't believe unless I see the nail scars in his hands. And Jesus showed up in the room and said, hey, Tom, touch this. You know, can you imagine? I, I, I don't know who, I don't know why Matthew didn't just call him out here. He was, I mean, there's only 11 of them. Maybe it was him. <laughs> I don't know. But he said some doubted. After all of that, some doubted. I mean, here's Jesus getting ready to go back to heaven, and, and yet it says Jesus came to them in verse 18, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. This is an incredible moment. Jesus trusted his tribe with the Great Commission. He, he said, you know, 
this 11, this is the best 11 I got. My time is up. I finished the work I came to do. I, I'm trusting you with it. Obviously, you guys aren't perfect, as still one of you is doubting seconds before I leave earth. But I'm trusting you with this. I'm trusting you with the Great Commission. I want to tell you a story uh, that happened this weekend. It was a blessing to me. Yesterday, I went over to Pleasureville United Methodist Church, and I had the opportunity to speak to 30 members of that church. And the reason I was there at Pleasureville United Methodist Church is because last October, I sat down with a writer from the Community Courier, the local paper, and talked about this church and what God's done here. And she did a beautiful job of writing a story about Wrightsville Assembly of God. Well, some of the members of that United Methodist Church read that story. In fact, I, I met one of those guys yesterday, and he said to me, when I read that story about how God had taken a church of, of 30 mostly all senior adults, a church that had been in decline for over a decade, took a church that now is running over 202 Sunday services and the church has been renovated and the, the church is growing and it's now multi-generational, multi-ethnic. He read about this church and what God's done and he said out loud, if you can do it for them, why not us, God? Why not us? And he took that newspaper article to his pastor Little did he know, about three or four other members in the church also took that article to their pastor. And so Pastor Frank called me on the phone recently, and he said, hey, we read your story. It's awesome what God's doing at Wrightsville Assembly of God. Would you be willing to just come and, and speak to our church? I said, man, I'd love to. I, I tell you, it, you don't have to ask very hard if you're asking me to brag on the church. <laughs> I'd love to. So yesterday, that's what I did. I went and I, and I spoke to that church about what God has done here. But as I was thinking about what I wanted to say to them, and I was just kind of putting some bullet points down about our testimony and what God's done, my mind went back to a moment. And the moment was right out there in the foyer before it was all renovated. In fact, there wasn't even doors to walk through to get there. That used to just be an accordion fold curtain in the back of this room. And just on the other side of that curtain, we had a, a white folding table set out. First time I ever walked through the doors of this church, I sat at that table with my wife and with the five board members of this church who had invited me to come to talk to me about potentially becoming the pastor of this church. And my mind went back to that moment and to the conversation that, that we had that day. And, and I remember it being a very... Very raw and, and real conversation. In fact, I even remember it feeling a little awkward, but honestly, I, I, wanted, I wanted it to be a little awkward. And I don't have time to tell you all of my personal experience, but let me just say, here's why I did that. When we sat at that table, I recognized, looking around, wow, this is an older church. They had already told me it's you know, mostly senior adults. There's only about 30, 30 people here. And I've been around church long enough to know there's lots of ways to do it. Amen? Lots of ways to do church. And I told that group of leaders, I said, listen, if, if the people that are in this church just want to keep singing, 
the songs out of the hymnal and they want somebody to preach out of an older translation of the Bible and, and they don't really want things to change. They just like what they have and they want somebody to come in and be a good manager and shepherd. That's fine. That's okay. You can do church that way. I'll see you in heaven. It'll be awesome. But here's what I don't want. Don't bring me here and tell me that you want to you know, follow a vision and, and grow the kingdom only for me to get here and then have to fight a bunch of people here on earth that I'm going to have to worship with in heaven. Like, I, I'd, I'd rather not do that. So I said, if, if you're looking for a manager, just tell me up front. But if you want a vision-driven leader, that's who I am. And let me tell you what I mean by that. And I explained this. I said, I said to me, it means I don't have a playbook I don't, have a, I don't have a blueprint on how to revitalize the church, but here's what I'll do. If, if God calls me here, I'll go up to the mountain. I'll get a word from God, and I'll come down, and I'll deliver that word to the people of God. I'll get a vision for what God wants, and then everything, and I mean everything that we do is going to follow that vision. And can I just say, that was one of the most powerful moments in my Christian experience. Because I was looking into the eyes of some people that have been loving Jesus longer than I've been breathing air. And tears began to well up in their eyes. I said, Pastor, that's what we want for our church. Amen. That was Diane that just gave me an amen. She's been a part of this church longer than just about anyone in this church. She's been serving on this church board for over 30 years. Tears in her eyes. She said, Pastor, that's what we've been praying for. And I'm telling you, without the people at that table and the people that follow their leadership, we don't have a story to tell. Nobody's calling me to ask how to revitalize anything. Because God's concern is not for a person. His call is always for a people. And God has done something incredible in our lives together in the last almost five years. Because some men and women of God had the courage to say, we'll believe in the promise of God and we'll follow a person, imperfect, fallible, first to admit it, but a person who's heard from God. I want you to hear this today. Everything rises and falls on followership. Now, John Maxwell made famous the maxim, everything rises and falls on leadership. And you can go to Barnes and Noble and there's plenty of books on leadership. I mean, you can get a good education on how to lead things. There's not too many books on followership. But as I, as I read the, the word of God, I realize that good leadership requires good followership. I think it was one leader that said, if you're leading and no one's following, you're just taking a walk. <laughs> that's true. Let me tell you one more story that's personal to me before we close this service. There was a pastor uh, of a megachurch, pastored this megachurch, and things were going, I mean, amazing, but then one day, he had a conflict with one of his staff members. The staff member was kind of undermining his leadership, and, and he had to be removed. And when he was removed and sat down from his position of leadership, his real character and his real colors began to show. 
this staff member took a third of the church. He split the church. Took a third of the people and went and started his own work. So the church had to heal a little bit. But in time, the pastor said, we're going to plant a church. We're going to birth a new work in a rural community. And so he took a young couple and he, he put them in this rural community to pastor this new work. And, and at first, he really walked with them. I mean, he journeyed with them. He coached them. He discipled them. He taught them how to do this thing. and Everything was great. But in time, one of his former members came and began to talk to this young couple. And they turned their heart against their pastor. Finally, the, the pastor had to close down the work. He had to just end it. But in time, he said, you know what? I really feel we're to plant a church. And so he asked his son this time, who had been a part of his ministry for a long, long time. He said, would you, would you plant a church? And so they got together a, a core group of about a dozen individuals to help him, and they started the work. And man, I mean, it was going like gangbusters. Things were growing. It was multiplying. People were excited about what God was doing in it. But in time, in that leadership team, there began to be factions. People were jockeying for position. And then it was found out that the financial secretary was embezzling funds out of the ministry. The real pinnacle of it all was when the whole core team of people abandoned the young pastor in a crisis situation. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God restored them. Uh, they, they restored the relationships, and, and now, I mean, that church, that church is an international ministry. That church is reaching the globe. I tell you that story because good leadership requires good followership. See, there's no perfect leaders. Or is there? Certainly not me. But what if, what if God were the leader of the church? What if Jesus were the pastor? I mean, that's a perfect leader, right? See, revisit the story with me because that's exactly who I'm talking about. See, I told you there was a, a pastor who had a mega church. That was God in heaven. And one of his staff members, Lucifer, decided that he wanted to have his own church. And so when God set him down, what did he do? He took a third of the angels with him. And he went and started his own little work. And after a while, God decided, you know what? Let's plant a rural church in a little community called Eden. And he took a young husband and wife, Adam and Eve, and he started a work. And he mentored them, and he walked with them. And the Bible says he walked with them in the cool of the day. He coached them. He taught them how to do this thing. But in time, one of his former members came and began to deceive them. And they turned their heart away from God. And so God had to close the doors on that work, didn't he? But in time, you remember I said he wanted to plant a church, and so this time he asked his son, would you go and plant the work? And he sent Jesus with a dozen or so in his core team, the disciples, to start the church. But in time, 
they began to fight with each other for position. You remember the disciples saying, who's going to sit on his left and who's going to sit on his right when he comes into his kingdom? And then his financial secretary, Judas, was embezzling funds out of the ministry. And by God's grace, after his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus rallied those 11 back together. And in spite of all their shortcomings and failures, he called this tribe, he commissioned this tribe to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's why we're here. I tell you that story because good leadership, even perfect leadership, requires good followership. So hear me today in saying this. Outside of Jesus, there are no perfect leaders. So don't wait for somebody to be the perfect leader for you to let God speak to you through them. And don't disqualify yourself from being God's instrument, God's voice in somebody else's life. He wants to use you. He can use you for his glory and for his purposes. I was thinking this morning, I, I didn't share this in the first service, but I was thinking this morning about Connie. She was here in our first service. God put it on her heart this year to start a ministry in fact, it's going to be launching March 24th, 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on a Saturday. Ministry is going to be called Circle of Hope. And it's a, it's a ministry that is designed and intended for people to walk alongside one another who are battling cancer or who have family that have been impacted by cancer. Connie herself is walking through that journey. She was cancer-free when God put the burden on her heart. But since stepping into the calling, cancer's come back. But she knows that her steps are established by God. Amen. And she's building this ministry because there's a tribe of people out there that need someone to journey with. They need someone that they can walk with. You need someone that you can walk with. I need someone that I can walk with. God has called us to be a part of a people. And earlier in this service, Pastor Chris showed you the, the DVD series that we're doing and said, all you leaders can sign up out there and pick one up. And, and maybe you thought in that moment, well, who are the leaders? He was talking to you. He was talking to you. There are no perfect leaders. But every one of us has a sphere of influence. Every one of us has people. That, that they're our tribe. These are the people we're doing life with. These are the people God's called us to covenant relationship with. And I want to challenge you to, in this season of our church's life, and in this season of your life, to lean in with your whole heart to the reality that everything God wants to do in me, he's leading me on a journey to a place called together. I cannot fulfill my God-given assignment on my own. I want to invite you to lean in to that with your heart today. And I want to ask you to stand with me as we pray at the conclusion of this service. Would you, as, as you just stand in reverence for God, to honor his presence once again as you did earlier in worship, would you just close your eyes, bow your head, and again, let's just be still for a moment in his presence.
you're here today and you, you feel like you're far from God, I want to just admonish you today to hear his promise, I am with you. God is not against you. He is for you today. He loves you. And if you feel far from him, it's not because he's moved. He's right where you left him. I think you knew that. That's why you're in his house this morning. You knew where to find him. Come home to him today. If you feel far from God, come home to him. You don't have to pray a special prayer. Just pray a real prayer from your heart. Stop running and come home. If you're here today and maybe, maybe everything's good with you and God, but the distance in your heart is from the people of God. You don't have a tribe. You don't have a sense of belonging. You don't have a people that you're journeying with. Maybe all you have is an affiliation to a church. If you're not connected, can I just encourage you to lean in today, to risk vulnerability and being known and being loved for who you really are and not for the front that might so easily fit well? Lean in with your heart today. And pray, pray a prayer like this in your own heart. God, I recognize that I can't do what you've called me to do, and I can't be everything you've called me to be in isolation. I must risk being known. I must risk vulnerability. But God, thank you that that's what family is for. Thank you, God, for saving me and putting me in a family. Thank you, God, for identifying my tribe. God, I commit to be intentional about those relationships, to glean from those relationships all that you have for me. Lord, even those who rub me the wrong way, God, I recognize that the friction sharpens the sword. And as iron sharpens iron, God, you've put them in my life to sharpen me. So God, I'm going to lean in with my whole heart to your family. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen.